You're listening to another EY podcast. Hello and welcome to EY's IFRS 17 podcast series, a series that brings you views on IFRS 17, the new international accounting standard on insurance contracts. My name is Kevin Griffith. I'm EY's global insurance IFRS leader based in London and working with a number of clients around the globe on IFRS 17 implementation. I'm also a member of the ISB's Transition Resource Group for IFRS 17, which is one of the ways in which the ISB is supporting implementation of the standard. Implementing IFRS 17 with EY, the podcast series aiming to help you understand the possible technical and operational issues of the new International Accounting Standard of Insurance Contracts. In this podcast, we will discuss further tentative amendments to IFRS 17 insurance contracts. In today's episode, we will continue discussing with Connor Garrity. Connor is a director in our insurance accounting advisory team and has previously been seconded to the ISB to support the development of the standard. Hello, Connor, and welcome. Thanks, Kevin. I am pleased to be here. So, Connor, in October of 2018, the ISB discussed whether it might be appropriate to consider amendments to IFRS 17 as a result of 25 concerns and implementation challenges that were raised by various stakeholders. At the same time, it agreed on criteria that the board should apply when assessing whether an issue could potentially give rise to a change in the standard. We've already discussed some of these during the last episode of this podcast. That's right, Kevin. And in the months since October 2018, the ISB staff have presented more detailed analyses of the 25 topics and have made recommendations on whether the potential changes to the standard meet the agreed criteria. The ISB has now discussed all of these topics at its monthly board meetings from November 2018 to March 2019. We discussed some of those tentative amendments that emerged from the November, December and January meetings during the last podcast. So let's continue where we left off last time. So January 2019 was quite an important meeting where the ISB decided to make a few changes to the standard. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Let let me remind you about the topics uh, discussed at January meeting. The ISB considered five issues and tentatively decided to amend the standard to reflect four of them. Uh, And then the four areas that they decided to make amendments were one, the deferral of insurance acquisition cash flows for renewals that are outside the contract boundary. Two, the accounting for reinsurance contracts held when underlying insurance contracts are onerous. Three, extending the scope of the risk mitigation exception in the variable fee approach to include financial risk mitigation through reinsurance contracts. And finally, the recognition of the contractual service margin and profit or loss under the general model for contracts containing investment components. So of those four topics, we already discussed the first one being the deferral of insurance acquisition cash flows in the last podcast. So let's move on to the second topic, the accounting treatment of reinsurance contracts held also sometimes referred to as ceded reinsurance. Under IFRS 17, insurance contracts issued and insurance contracts held are measured applying a consistent measurement model. However, in the case of reinsurance contracts held, because an insurer receives insurance services from a reinsurer, the nature of the contractual service margin for reinsurance contracts held is different because it presents the net cost or net gain from purchasing reinsurance. Therefore, the contractual service margin of a reinsurance contract held can be both positive or negative 
and IFRS 17. Yeah, that, that's right, Kevin. And the ISB developed guidance on how this net cost or gain should be recognised over the period that the insurer receives services from the reinsurer. But one consequence of the way that we do this is that an insurer cannot recognise a gain in profit or loss from a reinsurance contract when the entity recognises losses on onerous underlying insurance contracts at initial recognition. This treatment created an accounting mismatch in the insurer's statement of comprehensive income and that's caused differences between the accounting treatment for underlying insurance contracts and the reinsurance contracts held. Ah, and how did the ISB board decide to address this? Well, the ISB was aware of this potential mismatch between recognising losses from onerous underlying contracts immediately in profit and loss, but deferring recognition of a corresponding gain from reinsurance over the reinsurance coverage period. But it thought that this circumstance would be rare in practice. Some stakeholders have warned for quite some time that there may be significant mismatches in profit and loss in many circumstances. And so what happened next? Well, as a consequence of this feedback, the ISB tentatively decided to require an insurer to recognise a gain in profit or loss when it recognises losses on onerous underlying insurance contracts to the extent that a reinsurance contract held covers the losses of each contract on a proportionate basis. This also applies when the insurer applies the premium allocation approach. This brings the treatment of reinsurance closer to what we are used to under current accounting standards today. Reinsurance held will still require separate measurement under IFRS 17, but this amendment is likely to reduce mismatches between reinsurance and underlying contracts, and so reduce P&L volatility. Thanks, Connor. The other topic that was raised by stakeholders was recognition of the contractual service margin in the P&L based on both insurance and investment services in the general model under IFRS 17. Yeah, this topic is an interesting one as has been around for a while. Let's first briefly recap on the June 2018 ISB board meeting. At this time, the ISB agreed to the staff's proposals to make several minor changes to IFRS 17. One of those changes clarified that investment-related services are to be considered when determining the coverage period for the allocation of the contractual service margin to profit or loss for contracts with the direct participation features. Those are the contracts that are accounted for under the variable fee approach. However, this change does not apply to contracts accounted for under the general model. The ISB decided not to include any amendments to the definition of coverage units for general model, model contracts. So then in the January 2019 board meeting, the board agreed with the staff to amend the standard so that under the general model, the contractual service margin will also be allocated on the basis of coverage units that are determined by considering both insurance coverage and any investment return service similar to the requirement under the variable fee approach. That's correct, Kevin. However, an important point here is that the ISB staff view an investment return service as different from an investment-related service, which is more like an asset management service. Those are the contracts provided in VFA, variable fee approach. I understand that the ISB staff believe that an investment return service will only exist in the general model if a contract includes an investment component. Yes, and, and deciding when a contract provides an investment return service requires significant judgment by an insurer, and this potentially gives rise to different application of IFRS 17 in practice by different preparers. 
That's a good point, Connor, but of course, the proposed change to IFRS 17 requires an insurer to apply that judgment consistently mm-hmm. in deciding whether to include an investment return service when determining coverage units under the general model. But at the same time, the staff did not provide criteria for that determination. Yes, that's right. So I understand that the ISB requires the assessment of the relative weighting of the benefits provided by insurance coverage and the investment return services and their corresponding pattern of delivery to be made on a systematic and rational basis by the preparers. That's true. So this change has the potential to significantly alter the profit recognition pattern for contracts measured under the general model that do provide investment return services. I expect that many insurers will therefore need to thoroughly assess their contract features and the proposed coverage units when they prepare any financial impact assessments. Oh, they certainly will. Right, Connor. So at the ISB meeting in February of 2019, the board tentatively decided to make two further changes and also rejected four other changes. Can you explain what the amendments were that they agreed to? Sure, Kevin. Let me deal with the first one. Banks and other non-insurers may issue loans that transfer significant insurance risk where the only insurance cover in the contract being is a settlement of some or all of the obligations created by the contract. Examples include loans with waiver upon death, student loans and lifetime mortgages uh, that are also known as equity release or reverse mortgage contracts. Let's start with loans as an example. Loans that transfer significant insurance risk are likely to be insurance contracts within the scope of IFRS 4 and IFRS 17 even though the only insurance cover in the contract is for the forgiveness of some or all of the obligations created by the contract if an insured event occurs. Yes, Connor, I can see this. However, the accounting consequences of insurance contracts under IFRS 4 are quite different from those under IFRS 17, and that's what creates the issue. Absolutely, yeah. The ISP staff noted that applying IFRS 4, an issuer of these loans could account separately for the loan, and that's in the form of a deposit component, and separately from the insurance components in the contracts. The entity could apply IFRS 9 to measure the embedded loan and apply IFRS 4 to the remaining insurance components. The issue under IFRS 17 is that when applying the standard, if a loan component is not distinct, then an entity needs to apply IFRS 17 to the entire contract. Is that right? Well, that's a large part of the issue. Uh, And the ISP staff think that applying IFRS 17 is appropriate but they acknowledge that there may be significant costs to implement IFRS 17 without corresponding benefits, especially for entities do not issue insurance contracts other than the loans we have been referring to. The ISP staff think that applying IFRS 9 to these contracts would provide useful information and could avoid significant costs. In the end, the ISP tentatively decided to amend the scope of IFRS 9 and IFRS 17 for entities that issue these sorts of loans, and they can apply either IFRS 17 or IFRS 9. And I understand that the selection is made at a portfolio level. So what about the second tentative decision they made? Well, the second topic covers transition. Under IFRS 17, contracts acquired in a business combination or a portfolio transfer are accounted for as if the entity issued them on the transaction date. And this has some interesting consequences. When an entity acquires insurance contracts in their claim settlement period, the resulting liability is classified as a liability remaining coverage applying IFRS 17 and not a liability for incurred claims. In contrast, an entity's liability 
to settle claims arising from contracts it issues is classified as a liability for incurred claims. That's interesting, Connor. I assume that operational complexity is a driver behind this issue. I can imagine that insurance contracts acquired are recorded in the same system as those have been issued by the entity itself. So it may be impractical for insurers on transition to be able to distinguish between claims liabilities that arose from acquired contracts and those that are acquired from contracts initiated in the past. It could be very difficult for them and consequently the ISB staff proposed to add a specified modification to the modified retrospective approach to require an entity to classify a liability that relates to insurance contracts that were acquired before the transition date when they were in their settlement period as a liability for incurred claims instead of a liability for remain coverage. This modification would only be permitted to the extent that the entity does not have reasonable and supportable information to apply the fully retrospective approach. An entity that applies a fair value approach at transition to groups of contracts acquired in their settlement period prior to transition will be permitted to classify such liabilities as a liability for incurred claims or a liability for remaining coverage. Okay, so that's the February meeting done. Let's move on to March 2019, where the board considered four potential additional changes. Can you give us an overview of those? Certainly. Well, there was the topic of the level of aggregation of insurance contracts, the scope of IFRS 17 in respect of credit cards that transfer significant insurance risk, Transition to IFRS 17 in respect to contracts that are subject to the variable fee approach to which an entity applies the risk mitigation option and transition to IFRS 17 in respect of loans that transfer significant insurance risk and amendments to transition and disclosure requirements resulting from the board's other tentative decisions to make changes to IFRS 17. So what did the board decide about level of aggregation, Connor? Well, in summary and in line with the ISB staff recommendations, the board decided not to change the level of aggregation requirements. While the ISP recognises that applying the level of aggregation required by IFRS 17 uh, will be a costly effort, it believes that the cost will be outweighed by the benefits to users of the financial statements. The ISP also emphasised that it sees these benefits as core elements of the standard, improving comparability with other industries and providing clarity and transparency of profitability and better insights into performance. The ISB staff also outlined during the board meeting that the annual cohort requirement was introduced as a relief in response to feedback from stakeholders that earlier proposals by the ISB for even more granular groupings, and that was by contracts with similar profitability, would be unduly burdensome. Thanks, Connor. What other topics were discussed? Well, the board also tentatively decided to exclude from the scope of IFRS 17 credit cards that provide insurance cover where the entity does not reflect the individual customer's insurance risk when setting the price of the contract. It decided to permit an entity to apply the risk mitigation option under the variable fee approach prospectively from the IFRS 17 transition date if it has designated the relevant risk mitigation relationship no later than that date. They decided to allow an entity that is able to use the fully retrospective approach on transition to use the fair value transition approach instead for groups of contracts subject to the variable fee approach if the entity, one, chooses to apply the risk mitigation option prospectively from the transition date and two, has used derivatives or reinsurance contracts to mitigate financial risk prior to the transition date. 
They also decided to amend certain RFS 9 transition requirements for loans that transfer significant insurance risk, to which an entity elects to apply RFS 9 on initial application of RFS 17 if the entity already applies IFRS 9. There are also two additional disclosure requirements that result from the ISP's tentative decisions on amendments to the standard proposed to date. These have been set out in detail in the ISP staff papers for the March meeting. So the ISP has now completed its consideration of all of the 25 topics raised in the October 2018 meeting. The ISP will consider at its April meeting the total package of proposed amendments and then determine whether the benefits of the amendments outweigh the costs and whether all the amendments do not unduly disrupt ongoing implementations. Once this process has been completed, the ISB staff expect to publish an exposure draft and they've said that will happen by June of 2019. During the March meeting, the staff indicated they would also seek permission from the IFRS Foundation's Due Process Oversight Committee to have a comment period for the exposure draft of less than 120 days. Connor, thank you for your time today and thank you everyone for listening. As always, we'll welcome feedback and suggestion for topics for future IFRS 17 podcasts. You can email us at financialservices at au.ey.com. That's financialservices, all one word, at au.ey.com. This has been another EY podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.